Welcome back to Never Settle. Today, I have Katie Gatti. She is a personal finance blogger. We're doing a three-part series because let's face it, beginning of the year, and we all, no matter what time of year it is, can use a little kick in the butt when it comes to personal finance. Katie, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be on. This is exciting because a, a brief intro, I came across your site when I was on a rage a couple weeks ago to close a savings account. I'm like, do I need to have this savings account? I'm just over it with bank of it. And I came across your blog and I was like, amen, oh, this girl gets it. So thank you for sharing what you do. BOA doesn't like it too much. I love it. <laughs> it is my that's pleasure. That's on a personal level. <laughs> it is my pleasure, especially knowing what I know about the fees that Bank of America will levy on their accounts. They're especially bad in those cash accounts for fees and some of the headaches that I'm sure you were experiencing that drove you to to Google to try to find an alternate solution. So I'm, <laughs> I'm more than happy to do it. Now, tell me, because I could go on a whole separate podcast interview on that one. What got you into personal finance and helping others to get on a better track? Love the question. I think the answer is pretty funny too. So I always joke that the reason that I got interested in personal finance was out of sheer greed because I had never really cared about money before. But when I got my first full-time job, I had a salary. I was like, oh, I got more money than I could ever need. I got $50,000 a year. I'm never going to run out. I'm big balling. And then a few months went by and I kind of had that realization of like, hmm, interestingly enough, I thought I was making all this money and that I'd never, you know, need more. But somehow it feels like there's no plan here. It feels like every month it's kind of a crapshoot what the credit card bill is going to end up being. It is a crapshoot how much is going to be left over and moved into savings. There was no strategy. There was no long-term plan. It was literally me just floating from one month to the next. And eventually it got to the point where I think I'd been working for about six months and I looked at my savings account and I thought, you know, I've got, I don't know, $10,000, $15,000 in there. It's not bad, but at some point you kind of start to wonder, well, crap, I'm, I'm giving somebody else, this employer, 40 hours a week is all I have to show for 40 hours a week for six months, 10 grand. Is that it? Like, yeah, I can pay my bills, but it just kind of felt like something was missing. And so that was the initial thing that piqued my interest or, you know, maybe lack thereof this, this feeling that I had no strategy. I had no plan. I'm kind of just floating and yet I'm giving all my time to work and like, what do I really have to show for it? So I just started going down the rabbit hole. And initially I was a little bit intimidated because once you start to peel back the layers of personal finance, you really realize, oh my God, there's a lot out there that I don't know. There's more that I don't know than that I do know. And all the jargon and all the terminology, it can be a little bit overwhelming, but I found a few podcasts that I liked. I found a few books that I liked and those, I am so thankful for those because they really allowed me to lay that foundation that then gave me the confidence to go out and try to learn more advanced stuff. Because now I had this information architecture. I had this structure in my brain and I almost think about it like a filing cabinet. I had, I had folders in the filing cabinet. Now I knew where to assimilate new information I was learning as opposed to 
I have no idea what this article is saying. I have no idea what this means for me, if it even applies to me. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So I am so thankful for that initial curiosity and the blogs and podcasts and, and books that got me into the rabbit hole. And then I've just had a, a hard time climbing back out of it now that I'm in. And now I, I obviously am a personal finance blogger myself. So I, I drank the Kool-Aid and here we are. Well, I appreciate your Kool-Aid because I love your flavor. And that's exactly <laughs> why we're here is to share more of that. You know, mm -hmm. I want other, I want listeners and viewers to watch this and say, you know what? That is me. Hi, Sam. Sam's your cat, by the way. <laughs> yes, this is Sam. Um, He's in and out of the frame <laughs> all day long. I would share too. A lot of people are on that autopilot, as you said, and you just, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's almost the a gray zone of what's coming in and where it's going. And we don't really know yeah. And whether we're aware of it consciously or not. Would you also agree? Some of us will numb that out because we don't want to face it. Oh, 100%. And that's, that's actually a super, I think astute insight because I've ha I had somebody DM me once was like, you know what? I really like, I'm really interested in getting my shit together, but you know, I feel this resistance inside of me to like buying your wealth planner. It's a, you know, $30 spreadsheet tool. It's very affordable. And it kind of helps you set up a whole plan. And she's like, and I'm realizing that I never think twice about other purchases that cost $30. And she's like, I don't think this is about the money. I think I'm just afraid of what I'm going to learn once I mm. peel back the curtain. Once I actually peek under the hood, it's like, I don't know what I'm going to find. And it's easier to continue to float or to choose to ignore it because it it's scary not to. It, it can be scary once you start to kind of look at things with a more critical eye. Which I want to delve deeper into. But prior, one other mention that you shared before is the jargon mm -hmm. and the wording in terminology, it's finance has its own language, you know, government has its own language, banking has its own. Mm -hmm. And I will also argue that it's done on purpose to do yeah. exactly what it did to you, what it used to do to me, mm -hmm. and what it's doing to so many others that aren't aware to confuse you, to keep you in that place of like, I feel stuck. What mm -hmm. are your thoughts on that? I think you're absolutely right. I think I always ask, who stands to gain from this? Like, what are the incentives in place? And I think, you know, you, even though when we start getting into that, uh, that world of like, oh, these things are intentionally confusing, it can feel borderline conspiracy theorist. But I also think that when you when you look at the very real industries that are propped up by mass confusion, there are a lot of industries that profit handsomely off people not understanding the lending industry, the insurance industry, um, the financial industry in general, like brokers, people that, you know, wealth managers, all of these people are obviously providing a professional service that would probably be less necessary or less marketable if your average Joe just had the basics down. They'd probably be able to discern between what's actually a valuable offering and a professional service that they need and something that they're paying for or engaging in simply out of fear and a lack of awareness. So I think you're spot on. I love that you gave specifics as well. Thank mm -hmm. you for sharing that. Of course. 
into who, you know, they, they do the same thing in the health industry as well. Mm -hmm. And it goes right into the wealth and financial and all that you mentioned. So on that subject, just to go back into what you were sharing prior, what do you think is wrong or corrupt specifically, or that needs attention in the mindset, but also the industry in general for finance? Yeah, I think the biggest aha moment for me specifically was this idea that your average American needs a professional money manager, that you need somebody to manage your net worth for you, that you couldn't possibly understand the complexities of investing your own money and doing so in a way that's going to get you ready for retirement. And oh, by the way, it's going to cost you 1% per year of your net worth to do that. And I think what what really shook me awake was I had a call early on in my career with a financial advisor. Now, this is the other piece that's a little bit corrupt and maybe a little bit, well, it's frustrating for me in, in seeing how this is played out and how this, uh, mis this intentional misunderstanding is monetized. There is a difference between a certified financial planner who charges you by the hour and will give you maybe specific advice, or maybe they are handling some investments for you, but somebody that is a CFP and somebody that is selling an insurance product, very different things, but they have very different titles. And most people don't know, and I, I believe this is by design, that a CFP or a CPA or these other things that involve very uh, intense certifications and our fiduciary, which means they have to act in the client's best interest is different than a just general run of the mill financial advisor. The bar to become a financial advisor is a lot lower than it is for some of these other uh, certifications or, or licenses. And most financial advisors that we're going to encounter in our day to day are people whose incomes are tied to selling you an insurance product whole life insurance, um, annuities, things that are very, very heavily commissioned products for them and do not necessarily align with your best interests as the client. So I would point to that as maybe the uh, most <laughs> malicious uh, angle in the financial services industry is that it's very hard for a lay person to tell unless you know the specific terminology and the specific questions to ask whether somebody is just trying to make a commission off of selling you a financial product or is actually trying to build a you know holistic financial plan for you and i would argue that even even that level of attention and uh professionalism of a professional financial plan most Americans really don't need that for a long time too. Like it's really not super, super important that, you know, every person work with a certified professional. And that's kind of the, I don't know, maybe the controversial statement, but, but in the age of the internet and because of the advancements that have been made in fields like robo advising and just even the basic index fund, you can spend a weekend reading about this stuff and probably get 80 to 90% of the value that you would get from paying somebody else hundreds or maybe even thousands of dollars to do it for you. So I think it's this kind of convenient uh, misunderstanding in the 
financial services world that that kind of serves to make people believe that they can't do it themselves and that you know it's very expensive to hire somebody not only just outwardly expensive but could be a very mis- expensive mistake if you hire the wrong type of person who does not have your best interests at heart so convenient confusion i think yeah. uh the title document. <laughs> yes. We can talk about that later. <laughs> I love Would it. you feel you have, and I want to share too, you have resources. You mentioned index funds and just take a weekend. You have all those resources on your website, which we're going to link below as well. And, you know, you, you mentioned specific questions to ask when it comes to some of the financial advisors versus CPAs. See if it's like, what if you're open to share what some of those specific questions might be? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say for for starters, if you are working with somebody already or you're considering working with somebody, let's say you are working with just a financial advisor, maybe somebody who's not a CFP, or I guess really the designation that matters is, is this person managing your investments for you? Are they actively managing your money? If so, it's very important to understand what you are paying that person, because that's the other thing that's a little bit insidious about the financial services industry is that the way that you are billed for their time and for their work is not them sending you a bill in mail for $1,000. They take money out of the account every quarter. It's on your statement, but nobody reads those statements because their page is long and they're loaded with numbers and loaded with jargon. And you know you may not realize that when they told you, hey, it's a 1% fee, you, you may not have actually understood like what that compounds into over time. It can be worth literally hundreds of thousands of dollars over your lifetime in, in a difference. And so I would say that's the first question I would ask is how much am I paying for the service that I have now? And, and really don't be afraid to, um, you know, ask the hard questions of whoever's managing your money. The the specific phrase is, am I paying an assets under management fee, an AUM fee? That's what triggers the, the knowledge for you that you're paying a percent of your total net worth to this individual to manage the money for you. The other thing that you want to ask is, are you a fiduciary? Fiduciary is a designation that means that this person is legally obligated to act in your best interest. If they're not a fiduciary, they're a salesperson. That's the bottom line. The other thing that you can think about as you um, kind of engage with these different professionals is I think it's, it's crucial to know when you need a CPA versus when you need a CFP. A CFP, Certified Financial Planner, has has a background in taxes like there is some tax they have tax knowledge but they're not a you know a professional they're not a tax professional so they're going to be able to give you a more holistic plan or, or give you kind of those best practices guidance um they may work with you to build a budget or they may work with you to build an investing strategy um but a CPA specifically is going to be really good about helping you understand you know potential tax optimization and uh, you know, if you're setting up a business and you're trying to decide if it should be and you know, it's it's probably going to be an LLC, but like, should it be an S corp or not? Like, those are the types of questions that you can take to a CPA. And the good thing about most CPAs and CFPs, I would say probably all CPAs and most CFPs is that they will charge by the hour. So it will be very obvious to you the cost, what you're paying for their services. And I think that's 
that's kind of if you're if you're unsure how this person is making money, be concerned. If they're not asking mm. you for money, they're probably getting paid in a way that is intentionally a little bit subtle. So I would say you want to be working with someone most likely who is charging you by the hour for the advice. So like we would read the ingredients on the labels of our foods, ask the right questions to read the ingredients on financial advisors and our finances. <laughs> you know, if we could encapsulate this because we are doing this in a three-part series. So if you're listening, you're going to want to check out part two and part three as well, which continues as to what we can do by changing our current mindset and what we're doing. And then, you know, what, what benefits from it, you know, or flip that, what benefits we can do by putting the mm -hmm. intention in them, what we're actually going to gain from it. Mm -hmm. So you want to check that out in part two and three, but from a takeaway here, mm -hmm. the mindset, the numbing, closing out, what is wrong with, you know, aside from the jargon, mm -hmm. aside from what are we as individuals not doing? I think we as individuals might be missing out on the long-term potential of our money. I think when I see people that are either expressly disinterested or scared or, you know, for whatever reason, there's a hump and that they're having a hard time getting past that block to want to learn more or to put in a little bit of time. To me, it's because they don't understand or they may not see the amount of money or the depth of the wealth that they're surrendering or sacrificing by not taking an interest. You know, if you only make $40,000 a year, you might think, well, what does it matter? I don't have that slack in my system anyway. I'm never going to be wealthy. So who cares? Why would I even bother? But by doing that, we're not seeing, oh, but you know, if you're only spending 35,000, then you can invest 5,000 a year. And over X number of years, that could actually become a million bucks in 20 years. So is that is that worth it to you or not? And I think most people, when you can actually show them kind of the numbers, it's like, oh, this actually is worth my time. So it's it's getting past that hump of like, you, you give your employer however many hours per week for your paycheck. But if we're not going to spend at least a small fraction of that time understanding how to optimize and maximize that paycheck that we're getting, it's kind of like, well, what's the point? Like you really, it, it is just kind of directionless. So I think it's, it's, identifying the blocker that's inhibiting us from recognizing what our wealth really has the potential to become and then intentionally disrupting and removing that blocker, whatever it may be. Good takeaway. And that's going to segment right into our second series. So stay tuned for the second part of this. Katie, Gathy, thank you for your initial insight. And I'm already excited for the second part. Thank you, Sarah. Me too. Stay tuned. Stay tuned on Never Settle, and we'll be right back.